0: Hi, welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jane Iwamora about her wonderful new book, Virtual Orientalism, Religion and Popular Culture in the U.S., which was published by Oxford University Press in 2011. In popular perception, a certain image arises when we imagine Eastern religions. Perhaps we envision a wise old Asian man in traditional clothing sitting in a meditative state. Maybe not. But why does this image emerge? Iwamura examines this Oriental monk figure in this new book. She outlines the history of popular representations of Eastern religions within the American religious landscape of the 1950s through 1980s. Over and over again, she found that the East was imagined through a particular perception of what Eastern spirituality was all about, And how one could access it. She presents a short genealogy of this Oriental monk icon through the public representations of D.T. Suzuki, the Japanese scholar and popularizer of Zen Buddhism in the West, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the celebrity guru for the Beatles, and Kwai Chang Kane from the popular television show Kung Fu. In our conversation, we discuss the Zen boom, the hyperreality of images, Jack Kerouac and the Beats, Alan Watts, geographies of East and West, and what makes American Orientalism unique. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, This morning, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jane Iwamura about her wonderful new book, Virtual Orientalism, Asian Religions and American Popular Culture. Uh, good morning, Jane. Thanks for talking with me.
1: Good morning, Christian. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, now, this this really, uh, I think it's a wonderful book. Um, you know, the community of scholars who are interested in this subject uh, seem to be uh, praising the book. It's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, it seems to be that people uh, are already kind of including this uh, theoretical position of the Oriental monk in some of their work. And uh, if I'm correct, last year there was a a whole panel at the American Academy of Religion dedicated to the book. So um, it sounds like I'm not the only one who likes this.
1: Um, (laughs) I'm delighted.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So um, we're we're excited to talk to you about the book. But before we get going, um, maybe you could uh, introduce yourself a little bit, um, a little bit about uh, how you got interested in the study of religion, Um, perhaps people that have been influential in how you approach religion.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to do that. Um, it, my background in religion goes back, I believe, to my childhood. I was raised in a Shin uh, Buddhist family and community. And so from a young age, I um, attended temple and Dharma school. So that was really my foundation. But um, as many Buddhists living in the U.S. know, um, America is a very challenging environment to be a Buddhist, especially when I grew up. So um, this was complicated by the fact that um, by the time I got to junior high, um, my parents decided to send me to Seventh-day Adventist school, and that was followed by education in a Mennonite high school, and uh, dotted in between there were a Catholic and a Episcopalian summer camps and I had a turn with evangelical Christianity in college. So by the time I got to college, I had, you know, even though I had this Buddhist background, I considered myself a Christian. Um, And from this very kind of schizophrenic religious background, I think um, uh, one often hears that you study what you're most confused about. Um, So obviously religion was a topic uh, that really fascinated me and that I decided to pursue in, in both college and in my graduate education. Um, And it really opened my eyes, I think. By the time I went to do my graduate work at Harvard Divinity School, things had turned once again. And I really felt that what resonated for me um, was actually Buddhism. Uh, It was almost returning to what I had begun with. Even though I had been trained in the Christian tradition and Christian theology and uh, philosophy of religion... um, my, my research interest um, turned by my master's degree, which led me to pursue in my Ph.D. work on Asian religious communities. Um, I had looked around to see if there had been anything written about the community that I grew up with. And while there were a few things, this seemed to be a real lacuna. Um, there were certainly things written about um, Asian Buddhism. And obviously, things written on American Christianity, but nothing in between. So that's uh, basically what led me to study what I do.
0: And um, so how did this specific project come about?
1: Um, again, it emerged from my, um, my own personal background and my uh, research interest and I looked around, well, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> when I was entering my Ph.D. work, I had spoken with some of my mentors. And I said, you know, I would really like to focus my research on Asian-American communities, basically religious practice among Asians here in the U.S. And um, I just I would get was, you know, that is wonderful. We are so happy you're going to study Asian religions they didn't quite get the American or U.S. part of yeah. that equation, and I kept I kept bumping against against this time and time again. And I, you know, sat down and I reflected, and I said, "What, you know, what is? Why don't people get this? You know, uh, what is the the barrier here?" And this led me to um, the Oriental Monk Project. I said, you know, even before I write on Asian-American communities, I have to do a little work. <laughs> and that work is basically understanding the perspective that Americans come to Asian religions with. How do they see Asian religions? How do they see um you know, different communities and different peoples practicing Asian religions. And that led me to, uh, virtual Orientalism at this time too. I was noticing that Americans had this fascination with the Dalai Lama. Uh, this was in the 1990s. Um, you know, when there was much talk about Richard Gere and the Dalai Lama and, um, my sense growing up as a Buddhist was that there wasn't ever much interest in Buddhism among Americans before. And, and so I took these two things um, and they really kind of informed the project. So it was really, it really started with a simple question, you know, what is fueling this fascination with Buddhism and specifically with the Dalai Lama. And from there I tried to, Research and develop a cultural history of Asian religions in the U.S. And what you see here is uh, what came of it is virtual Orientalism. Um, The other piece of this puzzle too is popular culture. Has with my generation, I grew up with television and movies, and I knew that you know while we go to college and. Learn about religion and, relig- you know, study um, religion from that perspective. We really get a lot of our information from popular culture, and this was especially the case with, with the media and the Dalai Lama. So that also added um, that dimension of the project.
0: Um, now, Jane. The the title this this idea of virtual orientalism. I'm wondering if you could um, kind of set us up here. What how, how do you use this term orientalism? Obviously, this this has a, a wine raging uh, kind of application. And then what what makes American orientalism virtual for you? What do you mean by that?
1: Yes. So um, my theoretical framework is very much informed by the work of Edward Said. Just taking the word orientalism and his. Um, you know, groundbreaking book Orientalism. And basically, and the viewpoint the or definition that I adopt is it is this separation between East and West, especially in representation and, and discourse, in which the East has certain uh, characteristics and the West has certain characteristics. And um in our imagination, in our mind, the two are very separate. Um, for instance, the East is often talked about with feminine metaphors um, has a she it has um, the East is seen as um, much more passive, much more peaceful uh, while the West is often talked about in dominant male um, metaphors and is seen as taking initiative and having a certain amount of power. And I think that we use this configuration of East and West all the time. So uh, it's really key in um, bringing to our attention the way that we frame East and West in our imaginations. And this affects both you know our scholarly work and um, how we talk about the East and West in popular terms. So I found, you know, looking around and, and with my own interests, that this was definitely um, the framework that was informing much of Asian religion. that there was no way that we could think of the Eastern and the Western together. We can only think of Asians, you know, practicing Asian religions in Asia. And then as far as the West, it was often associated with Christianity. But if Buddhism came over to the U.S., it was often white practitioners were the focus of Buddhism. The virtual part, I found, um, is that, now you know, Tsai talks about Orientalism uh, mainly in um, European discourse. And I thought, well, what does it mean um, for Orientalism? Uh, how is Orientalism manifested in U.S. discourse among Americans? You know, how does it kind of infuse the way we talk, the way we think about Asia and Asian religions? And I believe that really the, the difference between uh, older models of Orientalism and a more kind of American Orientalism is uh, technology and um, popular representation. Uh, we're in a new generation where, where um, technology plays a huge role. It's no longer the book that is the focal point or the means of communication. Um, it is really television. It is movies. It is the Internet. um that- a information to go back and forth um, in very kind of swift and concrete ways. Now, many people would think that this would break down barriers between East and West. We'd have more information about Asia. We'd have more information about Buddhism. We can uh, be more informed global citizens. Um, but what I found with the book is that what media often does um, is that it takes long-standing metaphors and stereotypes and basically concretizes them, makes them more kind of stubborn or obdurate. Um, so while I thought there, you know there there is certainly potential for greater communication and understanding, I also saw that uh, again um, many of the separate between east and west the stereotypes about the east were very much alive and that is you know something that i wanted to conquer in the book so
0: so jane kind of the main um uh you you use this word icon as a kind of a uh centering focus for the book um this idea of the oriental monk maybe you could explain to us what how you use this as a critical concept and what exactly uh this idea of an icon entails for, for how you approach your, your data?
1: Right. So, um, the the project basically started with um, from a very, uh, everyday sense. And so when I looked around, um, and examined popular narratives about a, religion, what always seemed to emerge was basically the same story. And not simply the same story, but also the same figure, which is the Oriental monk. There was always some type of monk uh, that was very <laughs> perhaps not the main uh, so-called character, but a very important one. And as I began seeing this emerge again and again, um, obviously I had to really think through how this particular figure was operating. And at first I think it was easy to to perhaps think of it simply as a stereotype because this monk had certain features, always a certain features. The monk usually um, was Asian um, let, let me give you a concrete example, which I, I feel that um, the audience might relate to. Um, uh, a very popular Oriental monk is Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. And so you'll notice that Mr. Miyagi is obviously Asian. He has a very deep-seated spirituality. He's very calm. Um, in addition, he is always... The monk is always poised, um, has a lone or lonely figure. He never has a community. So, Mr. Miyagi, he has no family. You know, there's no you know Japanese American or other type of community. Um, and uh, this is these are some of the features of this particular character. So, um, when I really thought about how is I theorized this. I said, "Well, this is definitely a stereotype." So I was looking at these various Oriental monks, and I really felt that the way it functioned. I don't believe that many people who viewed the Karate Kid or other um, other forms of these narratives, such as uh, Kung Fu, or you know, later on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, really saw these different. Uh, has stereotypes. I obviously wanted to call them out as such, but they really function in a much more type of positive manner. Um, That is why I chose to call it an icon. It it almost function has um, a representation, a religious representation, one in which people... Look to has a type of moral compass. And I felt Icon capture that much more. Through the book, I I wanted to lead the reader to see how that icon had very stereotypical dimensions. But I did want to focus on the fact that, you know, for many people, especially, you know, the everyday viewer, that when they uh, engaged with these stories on television or in the movies or in popular print, they really took that figure as a model. And so often, you know, we think of icons more as, as like the icon of the Virgin Mary or the icon of Jesus. Well, I felt, you know, within the popular realm, the Oriental monk uh, really functioned in this manner. And that was the reason the, or the reason why I chose to position it, has an icon.
0: Now, um, in in the introduction, you talk about that, in general, the American encounter with Asians was largely mass-mediated. And um, you just just uh, mentioned this notion of stereotypes versus icons. Um, Maybe you could kind of just give us a brief background of, previous to what you see as this positive oriental monk figure, what were some other kind of representations of Asians in American culture?
1: Of course, and I'm going to link this specifically to um, perceptions of uh, Asians, especially in relation to religion. Um, I would say before uh, the 1950s, Um, from the early 20th century to mid-century, the view of Asian religions and specifically here, um, well, Buddhism and Hinduism was often very suspect, uh, if not derogatory. So in the beginning, in the late 19th century to early 20th century, uh, um, Chinese were often seen as heathen. Um, Bret Hart's... um, kind of uh, popular representation of the Chinese as heathen Chinese uh, was very prevalent. The Asian people were seen as almost uh, a godless people, and and this was obviously used against Asian American communities um, during that period. Um, there were ov- obviously benign uh, relationships to Asian religions, uh, but really Americans didn't embrace, say, Buddhism or Hinduism or Sikhism, anything related to their identity. Right? Um, this often uh, goes along with viewing Asians and Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners. Um, people who can't really integrate into the U.S. right will always be seen as alien on American aliens on American soil. Now, what happens in? Well, let me back up a little bit. So, from uh, late 19th centuries to the early 20th century, and in, into the Second World War, um, this. View of Asian peoples and their religions uh, is is pretty stable. It, in fact, is exacerbated especially during World War II uh, when it comes to the Japanese. If you one looks at representations of Japanese Buddhism, and say Life magazines, um, Buddhism is always seen as uh, you'll be. Sh- Because I think right now we have a very positive image of Buddhism, but the way Japanese Buddhism is portrayed as, you know, very instrumental that people are just, you know, sitting there. Why are they just sitting there? Um, And obviously informed by the kind of malignant view of Japanese during the time because of the war. Now, obviously, the victor in World War II was uh, the U.S. and the West. And um, there was the occupation of Japan in the 1950s, and you see a radical shift post-war. So where a lot Life magazine had once talked about Japanese Buddhism in a particular way, what you see are these covers um, in Life magazine about uh, Japanese style, about uh, kind of a more open engagement with Buddhism. And, and Buddhism talked about in much more positive ways. In fact, um, time, I'm sorry, Life Magazine at the time during the 1950s had a whole series on world religions. So there was this kind of opening up to other um, religious traditions or world religions. But that only happened against the background of U.S. dominance and stability. Um, and what you also see, again, in the popular realm is where you have these kind of very anti-Japanese kind of portrayals uh, in U.S. film. And you see a little of that in the 1950s. You see more friendlier, you know, uh, versions like uh, Sayonara or um, or I'm going to get the title on Tea House, the August Moon. Oh, gosh, gosh. Um, but there are definitely more friendly representations during the 1950s. And, um, and so again, you really, you really see this shift. Uh, and what also happens during the post-war period on is we have the emergence of the model minority of Asians seen as um, being able to not only in- integrate into the US, but integrate and excel and sometimes even surpass um, people that have been here a long time. And I think really the recuperation of Asian religions and the model minority myth go hand in hand. So you you know again there's this pivot point um, from very negative representations and to shifting in mid-century to much more positive representations. Of Asians and Asian Americans, and that includes Asian religions.
0: Um, this is this is a really good lead into the first figure you choose as kind of uh, you're an example of the Oriental monk. You talk about this figure, D.T. Suzuki. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you could just briefly introduce who he is, um, and maybe why why you selected him. Why was he important as far as this Oriental monk icon?
1: D.T. Suzuki uh, was perhaps the most well-known popularizer of Zen in the West. Um, He had traveled to the U.S. many times, starting from uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And because of his uh, proficiency, obviously, in Japanese, but also in English, he played a key role in introducing a Western audience to Zen Buddhism and Japanese culture. Now, the reason he becomes a very important figure uh, for this project and in the larger story is that um, in the 1950s he, he receives a lot of attention by the by the popular press. Specifically, you'll find him emerge in um, popular magazines and news reports, and this is because he. Was engaging uh, not only. Let me back up here. When when Suzuki came in the 1950s, he was really embraced by uh, the elites um, in New York City. He had a visiting professorship at Columbia University, um, but at that time he was engaging with well-known psychologists and musicians like John Cage and social and because there was so much, so much interest and buzz about Buddhism, basically this was projected onto Suzuki. He became the figure um, that people entered into Zen Buddhism and Japanese culture. Now he also becomes a key figure because uh, Suzuki was extremely prolific. Um, he wrote many books in English on on, um, Zen Buddhism and um, Japanese culture and that's uh, at that time what happened that in universities if you were taking a course on Buddhism who would you read? You would read D.T. Suzuki and so much of that foundation of what we know about Buddhism here in the West is highly indebted to D.T. Suzuki Um, so again, I'm going to jump back to the 1950s, and what I found is, you know, I knew that Suzuki had this uh, very a huge, huge influence on what we think of Buddhism here in the West. But what I was really surprised to see is that when I started you know, um, researching and flipping through these magazines of time, uh, flipping through uh, Life magazine, flipping through the New York Times pages on religion, flipping on these different kind of uh, media sources, that there was a time between 1955 and 1957 that Suzuki was, you know, um, to the point that he had a feature in The New Yorker, a very kind of long, extensive article and essay. And um, and I was just really struck by that. There's, there's also one um, group that he engaged, engaged with that was also key during the 1950s, and that was the Beats. The Beats really adopted... Uh, D.C. Suzuki has their oriental monk. Um, obviously, Gary Schneider was already much into Buddhism, um, but they, you know, Schneier was engaged in it and had known about Suzuki. Introduced Carol to Suzuki, and um, again he becomes kind of the moral leader or even spiritual guide for the Beats. This would this would wane in, in subsequent years, but during the 50s, this is how uh, Buddhism look in, looked and looked and beat terms.
0: <laughs> Now, um, you, you mentioned in the book, and you, you kind of gave us a peek at it here, that uh, intellectually, Suzuki was very important. Um, but in the chapter, you focus on how he was kind of visually presented to yes. Americans. So what, how did Americans uh, encounter him, I guess? Yes.
1: Yeah, so um, part of my research... Looked at not only how Suzuki was written about in popular prints, but how he was visually represented. And again, there was it was quite striking. Um, if anyone does um, looks into Suzuki's life and you know does more extensive research, they will see that you know Suzuki for the most part, especially when he was you know, in uh, the U.S. and kind of American public setting, you know, always dressed in jackets and a tie, bow tie and a very Western dress. However, you contrast that with the way that popular print decided that the, basically the images they selected for the articles. And here, invariably, except for maybe one or two instances, he's always... Um, presented in Japanese robes. There is is a real focus on his face. He had a very interesting face, but the the photographs really captured that he was older, you know, um, and he he just, the the way they captured him was in black and white. Well, that was because of the media at the time, but always, he looked very wise. (laughs) Um, And I think that was a very purposeful portrayal that they that representation um, would really capture an American audience. He, again, he conformed to the features of the Oriental, and um, his like physical features, but also in the way he dressed, as he was presented, um, he looked very wise and sagely, um, and that was again very much highlighted in these photographs.
0: Now. Um you talk about Suzuki's brand of Zen and it becoming a, a, a very stylized religion. What what exactly about Suzuki's presentation made it into a consumable object?
1: Suzuki's brand of Zen uh, was very attractive, uh, especially to an American audience. Uh, um, it didn't require you to convert. Um, it was very psychological and therapeutic. Um, it made very little demands on the practitioner. And it was something that you could, um, you know, more engage, I think, at this, during this period intellectually rather than in a strict practice. You know, even though Suzuki, I think, did emphasize practice. I think the way that he engaged the audience was always through books and through the intellect. So one could feel that you know you were reading Suzuki's work and you were really engaged. In the mood. Um, so again, very little um, demands on the audience. Um, so that was part of the attraction. The when I talk about this his presentation of Zen as stylized religion. What I really wanted to focus people's attention on was the fact that during the time that Suzuki's brand of Zen was being put forth, that it's buttressed by these images of specifically Japanese consumer goods. These are articles that Americans could buy, such as shoji screens, um, like cotton kimonos, you know, little tchotchkes that were Japanese in nature, uh, that you could really kind of mark your individual style, right? So, um, and I think what I wanted to, to kind of put out there, argue, is that, Suzuki's brand of Zen, Zen almost became a consumable object along with it so that, you know, you not only have a shoji screen, you might, you may have all these kind of Japanese articles in your house, but you can also say, well, you know, I'm really into Zen. (laughs) Um, So it becomes a part of kind of your consume consumable universe so to speak. Uh, It also marks your identity, but it's an identity that is one, you know, that you can buy or you can easily adopt. And this kind of sets the path later on for the way that Asian religions are uh, consumed. For instance, maybe perhaps a more relevant example uh, for people is when we think of Tibet. Many people are into Tibet, so to to speak. But they're not simply into the Dalai Lama or the Dalai Lama's cause, but you'll find that they can buy like free to bed bumper stickers, or they could, you know, buy a simple mandala that they hang in their home, or they might have incense. And all this becomes part of their world. But it's a world that has been constructed through consumer goods. And those consumer Goods take on meaning um, and provide take on meaning, but also provide ambience for religious and political commitments. So it's not that religion, and politics, and consumerism are separate here, they really work one in the piece. So Tibetan Buddhism gives those objects meaning, and but the consumer object is also play into kind of marking our identity um that you know we have this kind of commitment to tibetan buddhism too so again they're one of the same piece and really that didn't happen just in the contemporary period um that i'm talking about now but all the way back the groundwork was laid really with these Suzuki in the 1950s yeah
0: um, now, the the second figure you focus on uh, is interesting, Buzz, because a lot of the same kind of phenomena is happening here. Um, so uh, you focus on uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I'm wondering if you could mm-hmm. just kind of tell us who he was um, and m- perhaps uh, h- how were Americans introduced to him? Yes, so the, the
1: Maharishi Mahesh Mahesh Yogi uh, was a spiritual figure who founded the um, Transcendental Meditation Movement. And this movement had basically, well, the, the Maharishi had founded this movement in the 1950s, but it really didn't come to uh, a Western audience until the 1960s. It's really interesting because if you look back uh, historically, you know, in newspaper ads, you'll always that TM and the Maharishi had all these these kind of small ads placed in, say, the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times. So I think that his movement, and he were always trying to make inroads um, in the U.S. and just globally. However, what happened in the 1960s, as we all know, is the Beatles. And the Beatles decided um, or really felt resonance um, with... The Maharishi and Chancellor meditation, and really made this prominent uh, uh, during the late 1960s.
0: Now, um, Mahesh Yogi was uh, after this kind of encounter with the Beatles. We we have him in a lot of types of media, um, but in the chapter you focus on on magazines, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you could just kind of uh, explain. Why magazines are uh, unique as opposed uh, in regards to other types of media? Um, what what can they do in presenting a figure like Mahesh Yogi uh, that maybe TV or other types of things can't do? What why did you focus on magazines? I guess is what I'm trying to get at.
1: <laughs> well, at the time, I mean, obviously times have changed, radically, uh, but at the time, magazines uh, were. A channel by which many Americans um, engaged with the popular. Um, magazine readership was, you know, at an all time high during the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, usually every household had a, a copy of Time Magazine or Life Magazine or one of these popular news weeks And the reason I really focused on magazines versus television. Um, and this is, you know, this was a decision here because obviously, especially the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi appeared on, um, television as well. He appeared on the Johnny Carson show, uh, which is huge. So I have to make an admission here. Um, part of the reason one is obviously theoretical, which I'll get to, but part of the reason I focused on popular magazines versus television was all. Although practical, and the reason is, I actually did want to pursue or look at very closely uh, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's appearance on Johnny Carson, um, because similar to you know Life Magazine, you know many people, a wide audience watched Johnny Carson. So this was I was really excited when I found out about this, but as you know, I looked. And- Footage, I found out that basically the footage of Johnny Carson during that period had all been destroyed. There are a few stills left from the show. Um, I believe there are no transcripts. And so I really had no material to work with at the time. So the, that kind of led me to, to magazines. But getting back to magazines, too, I felt that it was a much more kind of engaging. Uh, it was a much more stable and um, engaging medium, um, during the period. So for, for instance, like nowadays, if we watch something on TV and we're really interested in it, we can just, you know, um, go to Netflix, go to YouTube and watch it over and over again. Right. So we can have this kind of sustained engagement with say a visual text, um, and, or, you know, if our friend says, oh, I'd like you, you know, I had saw this really great program on, um, you know, again, it's easy to bring up. Back then, that wasn't the case. You either caught it during the time it aired or you didn't. Whereas a magazine, it was there in your living room, you know, for a week or more. You could, you could hold it in your hand and flip through it at whatever pace you wanted. To. To, but you know you'd always um you'd usually sit for it for a much longer period of time or even go back to the text so i felt that you know here was a medium that within very, very uh, mediums that are very that we engage with on a very, very uh, fleeting basis that you know had a little more heft to it um and that's the the reason why I decided to look at popular magazines.
0: Um, now, in this chapter, um, I, I really like this chapter. I actually used it in my class. And you, you go through um, a number of different visual presentations of Mahesh Yogi. And basically, you're saying that through images, um, these magazines are making commentary. Right? They're, they're making yes. decisions, selective decisions, interpretive decisions. And you basically come up with counterpoints um, mm-hmm. in relation to a couple of topics. Um, so you talk about uh, how Mahesh Yogi is pictured it, uh, in relation to pupils, in relation to things like technology, uh, celebrities or the idea of being a celebrity. Um, maybe you could just take one or two examples and uh, explain how these counterpoints happen through imagery.
1: The visual image is fascinating to me, especially within popular print media, um, mainly because if you pick up a magazine or a newspaper or, or any type of um, popular print, that you might not read the story, but you'll certainly look at the pictures. And so that is another reason why I decided to really focus on the visual image. And um, when I happened to... You know, look at these um, images of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi during the late 1960s. They had a story to tell in and of themselves. Um, You could basically see how the selection of images led to or uh, culminated in a particular take on the figure For instance, you could tell if the story had a positive take or a negative take on the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Or um, even within a picture itself, the the visual often made a commentary. For instance, um, in Look Magazine had a, a piece by Paul Horn and his trip to India as he followed the Maharishi. And one of the images is of the Maharishi with a camera in a crowd. Um, And it seems like a fairly benign photo. But I feel that it's like, well, (laughs) you know, there are many pictures of people with cameras and crowds. You know, why did Look Magazine decide on this photo? And um, it became clear to me that there's a certain type of delight that the audience... uh, or interest that the audience takes from this image, and it's a juxtaposition here. Again, the Oriental monk and Maharishi has an Oriental monk is seeing someone um, who is who embodies an ancient wisdom, is almost from a time different than ourselves, from a time past, and so you have this figure who, you know, comes from this different time in our imagination, and he's holding up a piece of technology, the camera, and it provides this really interesting juxtaposition, right? It would almost be like, you know, the Dalai Lama sitting sitting in front of a computer today, right? Uh, Not, you know, we shouldn't, anybody else sitting in front of a computer, it's not a very interesting picture, but you have an Oriental monk and what he represents in front or with or engaging a piece of technology, and, you know, it's this kind of um, startling, again, contrast. Um, So I looked at each of these images and really kind of asked myself, you know, why this image? The image has to be interesting. It has to capture the audience's attention. It has to, you know, say something about the subject matter. And so I really kind of read each image uh, with this in mind. Um, Again, you know, we can never go back to the intention of the editors. um, And I don't necessarily claim to do that. What I do do in the book is provide an interpretation. Why potentially might these images have been selected? Um, Images are never, uh, you know, oftentimes we think of, the images of magazines similar to like our iPhoto where, you know, they're just there. Right. And they just tell us story in very transparent terms. But has anyone working on the other side of uh, magazines and magazine um, editorial boards know that they they have to be very careful and they're very selective about the photos that they use. So I just wanted to, you know, work from that premise and, you know, kind of investigate what was going on with these selections of images.
0: Yeah. I think you, you do a really good job there. Um, one of the other things, uh, that's interesting through these images, um, is this notion of geographies. Um, Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is, um, you, you kind of uh, look at the various presentations, um, Mm -hmm. of when Mahesh Yogi is in, uh, the West and when he's in the East. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about these like tensions of geography?
1: Yes, um, this particularly comes out when obviously Maharishi Mahesh Yogi um, traveled globally, and he made you know many trips to the U.S. and engaged um, an audience, especially during the late 1960s, um, a very large audience um, during his visits, and. Um, I felt that what was coming through the different kind of um, coverage of both his visits, but also of the Maharishi, you know, in his in his own compound in India, were were kind of um, presented in two very different ways. So when you look at, say, his visit um, to New York City, there's often a separation between um, Western, his Western audience and himself. Um, I mean, there's a few shots where, you know, he, you see him in the arena or, you know, um, in the auditorium and you see Western, uh, a Western audience looking at him. There's usually some type of separation. And oftentimes when Western meditators or TM uh, adherents are the focus, they're often just seen meditating by themselves, you know, basically this kind of static shot of a few Western and he are venture to go as far to say white meditators um, just sitting alone now, and the Maharishi, obviously they have images of himself, say at the microphone talking to the audience, where you see both together in those visits um, to the West is that the audience is almost, you know, you see these they're young uh, and they're very enwrapped and listening to every word that he's saying. Now, as far as the coverage in India, it really focuses on providing color uh, to the Maharishi's life and kind of the spiritual outlook. So it's almost like a tourism spread. So you not only see kind of the Maharishi within his own ashram or natural environment, but it's almost as if a tourist is taking these pictures. Um, You see kind of the local color. You see, you know, the Maharishi with musicians. You see him with painters. um, You see, you know, um, life in the ashram. So again, these two very different um, orientations really dictated by where the Maharishi is placed geographically. And there's, a sep- there's obviously a separation and orientation that highlights um, the, our distance from him, our distance from you know, this kind of Asian religious outlook.
0: Um, now, the, the last chapter you focus on this TV show, Kung Fu, Yes, it's my Um, favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe for for listeners who don't know, um, you could kind of just briefly tell us what Kung Fu was and then perhaps why this is an important uh, focal point for the Oriental monk.
1: Kung Fu was a television series that ran on ABC from uh, 1972 to 1975. It was a, a very popular series, I think, to the surprise of ABC executives at the time and, and really took off, um, especially among uh, families and young children. And basically, um, the series focused on Kwai Chan Kane, played by um, David Carradine. Kwai Chang Kane was... It as it's described here um, in the promo, he was a half-Chinese, half-American. Really what they mean is half-Chinese, half-white. Uh, um, individual who grew up in China and uh, spent a great deal of his childhood within a Shaolin temple and was trained in those spiritual and martial arts practices. Now what happens is that kua chang while protecting his teacher, ends up killing the emperor's nephew, and therefore has to flee China, goes into exile in the American West, and the show focuses on his kind of sojourn throughout the American West. Um, it became very popular because you know for those of uh, those who didn't live during this period, the Western was really kind of the dominant genre in, in kind of television dramas at the time, especially during the 1950s, 1960s. But it was also kind of on its way out by the 1970s. Um, So it was, it was a brilliant, you know, I don't think anyone kind of anticipated this, but it was a brilliant merger between the Western and a kind of uh, Eastern, it was a from the West, the genre of the Western and basically Eastern religions or Eastern spirituality, which, of course, kind of reflected a real kind of hippie sensibility at the time. Um, so it's almost this kind of merger between what an older generation knew, the Western, and a younger generation was engaging with, which is kind of a more kind of youth culture, hippie culture, um, very kind of open to religious alternatives at the time. Um And so, again, I think if you talk to anybody who even was maybe a teenager at the time, everybody remembers Kung Fu. Of course, you know, uh, people grew grew up later than that, don't remember it at all. But it was a very, very foundational show and basically laid the groundwork for, I would say, many of the um, martial arts movies that we see today.
0: (laughs) Now, um, in this, you, you talk a lot about how Asian philosophies, religious traditions are presented. Um, mm-hmm. So, how, how what do we learn as an audience about these traditions? How are they presented to us?
1: Well, kung fu is a very interesting case because basically it is an American audience's entree into an Asian religious outlook. And I would say one of the first engaged entrees into that outlook. Um, To the credit of the show, and I think it had to do this at the time, given its audience, um, it presented basically what it viewed as a, a Shaolin Kind of philosophy, uh, an Asian philosophy or outlook um, through the use of flashbacks. So when you watch the television series, Kwai Kane, there's always a story going on at the time that happens in Kwai Kane's you know life in the American West. However, these um, that particular story or episode is always dotted by flashbacks, and here uh, Kuai Cheng Kane is remembering his training um, in the Shaolin Temple in China. These become the occasions to kind of educate or tell an American audience about, you know, um, not necessarily, say, religious terminology or theology, I wouldn't put it that strongly, but, you know, moral commitments, outlooks um, that, you know, are taken as Asian, for instance. Um. And so these become very, very key. And the one thing that um, that happens in kung fu that doesn't happen in other narratives, subsequent narratives of the Oriental monk is that you know these are fairly um, extensive, I would say, because the flashbacks again occurred not many times throughout a particular episode, and then you have many episodes culminating um, uh, in a type of knowledge about the character, you also got a sense of his Shaolin background and training. And that, again, was a very kind of important introduction for an American audience into perhaps what they saw would be an Asian religious outlook.
0: Um, So what... In, in your assessment, what does Kung Fu do for uh, an, a popular American perception of, of Asians? Does Kung Fu challenge uh, conceptions by Americans of, of what Asians are, what Asian, Asian-ness or Asian traditions are all about?
1: I would say that is a very good question. <laughs> um, yes and no. Um I would say more no. <laughs> I, I, I'm very ambivalent here because the series, I think, did a good job at the time of presenting. Uh, it was one of the few shows that had um, Asian characters and not simply Kwai Chang Kang. I mean, Kwai Chang Kang is supposed to be half Chinese, but really um, David Carradine is uh, fully white Um, but it also included storylines with, uh, many Asian and Asian American actors that focused on the dilemmas that Chinese American communities faced at the time. So, you know, on that kind of episode by episode, um, level, I think that it did challenge or it brought to light, um, somewhat of the Asian American experience. For instance, the movie that kicked off the series focused on Chinese American railroad workers and really was sympathetic to the plight of those workers and highlighted their exploitation, which, you know, I think for a television series is really phenomenal on the other hand. So that's one hand. (laughs) But on the other hand, you have Kwai chang himself and the way he's represented. And I think that's a more enduring image and unfortunately is, ends up becoming the stereotype. And the way that he's played by David Carradine is that he is a very calm figure, that he believes in nonviolence. Um, so, for instance, in relation to the railroad workers, they want to really rise up at the time against um, you know the railroad bosses and protests their living conditions you know there's actually a figure who says you know let's get them you know <laughs> and, he, and then Kwai Kane becomes the kind of pacifying figure here for kind of revolution so to speak uh, and he says no you know we we don't approach it this way and he kind of breaks things up among the railroad workers and he said this is not the way to go Um So he becomes this figure that uh, there's only kind of one means of pursuing social change. Um, And it's one that in which Asians are seen as, you know, pursuing nonviolent means, which isn't a bad thing, obviously, but also kind of um, very calm, very almost aesthetic and serene um, and very spiritual. And I think that, again, is what endures, uh, um, unfortunately. We don't have that tension that actually Kung Fu, to its credit, actually captured. Uh, we're just left with Kua Chang Kane, pretty much. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now, um, in the conclusion, you kind of allude to uh, how, how this Oriental monk icon is still figuring today. Yes, and uh, you 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 title the chapter "Spiritual Romance" today, which is really interesting because um, part of what you talk about is how kind of the spiritual, not religious, this Oriental monk figure is very appealing, um, and it's obviously mm-hmm. enduring. And you give a number of examples. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if uh, if you feel like in the long run these type of Oriental monk figures uh, are are good, even though it's a somewhat positive image, certainly not a negative image. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a, is it a good image? Do we, what, I guess, what, what do Americans, uh, ha, how are they affected by this?
1: Yes. So, well, you know, it's been very interesting to see this when I was, when I was engaging in, when I was writing the book, basically I had children. So that put a whole new perspective on this. You know, uh, and it it was a wonderful perspective because I started kind of looking at what my kids were looking at, and realizing, (laughs) you know, I I was looking at everything from Ninjago to, um, oh gosh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to, um, so many different examples of children's programming and really found that this Oriental monk narrative was still very, very much in place and not simply in place, but really becomes kind of the moral story that children learn or the kind of vehicle that children, um, one learn about a foreign culture or this is, you know, they see diversity through this, but also, begin to think about you know how to act ethically and morally in the world Um, so I just wanted to put that out there and um, as far as its implications today whether it's more positive to negative obviously the pat answer is to say that um, or I've heard some people say well at least it's a positive image Right. You know, it might be a stereotype, but at least it's positive. It's not maligning, you know, a, a racial racialized community. You know, if anything, you know, Asians are seen in a very good light through this figure. Um, but I, what I would caution against is the insidious ways that even positive images or stereotypes or particular instances of these icons operate I still believe that what how the icon operates is this kind of clear division between East and West so that the figure or Asian religions is still seen, seen as foreign um, it's not seen as something kind of very much a part of American life. Um, so, for instance, uh, this is a bit of a side note, but a sidetrack is um, that oftentimes uh, <laughs> my children—I'll give you a very personal example. My children um, said to me, you know, so my son, especially, and my daughter, because he/she watches a lot of things that my son does, he, you know, said so my son said to me one day. He says, "Mom, you know." do you know, do you know Kung Fu? And I said, no. <laughs> he go. does grandpa know Kung Fu? I go, no. <laughs> I said, and then we stopped there and I said, why didn't you ask whether daddy knows Kung Fu? My, my husband is, is white. Um, and you know, they thought about it and they said, well, you know, cause you're Asian. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And I think here is where the racial division happens through representation. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is really, again, reified through these types of images. Um, And also, I think that there's these types of narratives, popular narratives, also breed a type of familiarity, which can be good, but also kind of can be bad. And what I mean by that is I think sometimes, you know, especially youth, they really think they know what a Tibetan Buddhist outlook is, right? Or an Asian, um, Asian religious outlook is because they felt like they've had so much of this engagement over television through these, you know, various TV programs or, you know, movies. Um, and so they feel they ha- really have a knowledge of this tradition that has been cultivated in very not over not only over a long period of time, but in very uh, specific contexts, um, and that leads to a type of feeling of um, privilege and kind of supremacy that you know it's almost sometimes you know and I engage in this, people feel that they know Asian religions better than you know people who study Asian religions. <laughs> <laughs> They said, oh, well, I saw Kundun or, you know, I read the Dalai Lama's book. You know, isn't this what it's about? No, that's not what it's about. This is what it's about. (laughs) So it leads to a type of familiarity that I find is frankly, you know, very dangerous, you know, and that erases much of the history of Asian religions of Buddhism and Hinduism. And again, how it's practiced by different peoples around the world.
0: Well, Jane, you, we've uh, taken a lot of your time, but uh, before I let you go, I'm sure everyone listening would love to hear about some of the things you're working on now or things you might have coming out soon.
1: Um, of, of course, and I'll make this brief. Um, I'm actually working on two projects at the moment. As I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, um, my real interest had been on a uh, focused on Asian American religions. again, religion has it as practiced in Asian American communities and so after now that I've written virtual Orientalism, I feel that I can return to Asian American religious practice and one of the projects I'm working on looks at a Japanese American home altar practice. so unlike Um, how many Americans think of religious practice. Um, When I looked at back at my own background and specifically at my grandmother's, you know, my, my grandmothers really didn't go to temple or church all that often. Um, But they were very religiously devout or very spiritual women. And so looking back on their lives, I realized that really what was the center of their religious life was our home altar. And I, and I know this was the case for many Asian Americans. So I've decided to kind of look back at the history of the home altar or the butsudan um, for Japanese Americans specifically. And it brings up a lot of, you know, really interesting issues about um, just to kind of um gesture forward to the project and why looking at home altar practice in this context is that you know um during world war ii when uh japan and the u.s were at war and in which um 10,000 japanese americans were interned here in the u.s that the first people to be um rounded up um in these internment or concentration camps were Buddhist ministers. And this leads back to home altars because many Japanese Americans felt that they had to either, some people in some cases burn their altars, some hid their altars, because it became a symbol of Japanese loyalty and affiliation. And they felt they would be persecuted if they had that connection with Buddhism. Um, So, as you can see, the the altar becomes this, you know, very fraught symbol. On the one hand, you know, I think many Japanese Americans have the attachment to the altar. I mean, it's very central to religious life. It also becomes an ethnic symbol as far as one's culture and one's commitments. But on the other hand, they realize that it also, during the war period became a symbol of their disloyalty to the U.S., or potential symbol, I should say. So that's one project. Um, The other project um, has to do, as you can probably read in um, (laughs) Virtual Orientalism, I really have this love of popular culture. And so my second project focuses on race, religion, and uh, American film. And... um, what I look at in this project, which is called "American Dreams: Race, Religion, Race, Film, and American Civil Religion," is I became fascinated by um, a set of filmmakers of color that became very whose films became uh, widely distributed during the 1990s. And here I'm thinking of uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Um, I'm thinking of Chris R's uh, Smoke Signals, uh, Gregory Nava's Mi Familia, or My Family. And the reason why I kind of focused on these particular films is that they were the first um, movies that were, one, by filmmakers of color, to, and two, distributed widely and had... a um, mass distribution across the U.S. Oftentimes, you know, there there certainly have been filmmakers of color, but very few, you know, they usually, their pieces are often, you know, channeled along the more kind of independent film line and usually not, you know, huge blockbusters or, again, widely distributed. So here was a time during the 1990s that these filmmakers put forward their vision of how it was to be, say, African-American Latino, uh, or Asian, uh, I'm sorry, or Native American. I'm also looking at um, Justin Lin's Better Luck Tomorrow, um, or Asian American in that particular instance. So what I look at in these films is um, basically the civil religious dimensions about they're trying to really kind of play with, you know, what is it to be American? Not simply in one's kind of everyday life and lifestyle, but also I would argue religiously and spiritually. This obviously is most salient in, um, in Spike Lee's Malcolm X, but it also does emerge in my family and also in smoke signals and in a very interesting way in better luck tomorrow. So I am very excited about that project. And, and um, the other piece of that I'll just end with is that the reason why I find this kind of group of film Films, very interesting and this period very interesting is, is that what you see come uh, 9-11 and the early millennium is that these types of films with not only um, uh, filmmakers of color but focusing on communities of color virtually stop. I mean, there's very little now and that these filmmakers themselves have had to go on to more Projects with a much more diverse, if not white, cast. So what was it, you know, part of what's motivating the project, too, is to really investigate it. What was it about that period in the 1990s that really allowed for this kind of opening up of of an American audience to different types of narratives about, you know, different, not simply different outlooks, but different kind of religious outlooks um, beyond... You know, uh, what I—beyond sp- the pale, so to speak.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Those sound really fascinating. Uh, in two totally different realms of, yes. kind of research, that <laughs> they both sound great. Um, and Jane, thank you again for for talking with us.
1: Thank you, Christian.
0: Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Jane Iwamura about Virtual Orientalism, Religion and Popular Culture in the U.S., published by Oxford University Press in 2011. Thanks again.